podcast. My name is Cecilia Manzini, uh, the founder and curator of the Anna Dimini space. Thank you so much for joining me today on this special episode of Anna Dimini Presents. So some of you may know or may notice that we've been gone a while, but we're back now and we found our way again into the world of podcasting for this latest issue of Anna Dimini. So for our third issue uh, titled He Came, we are looking at the Christmas story and this beautiful reality that Jesus took on flesh and became one of us. I find this story so compelling on so many levels and in so many different ways and one being that you know we are reminded of a God who knows where people are located. Uh, one of the passions I have with Anna Domini is to curate conversations and content to help believers know how to faithfully follow Jesus and live justly in the African context. So the Christmas story shows one of the deepest forms of solidarity for me. You know that Jesus, who being in uh, the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to cling to, but he set that privilege aside, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So um, if we believe in a God who incarnated himself and was attuned to the hard stories of his time, such is the mandate for us today as believers in our cities um, and our communities and in our city congregations. So that's why I'm so excited to introduce you to our guest for today. I had Reverend Sutemi Sozwane come to talk to us about the work that he does, which I believe will be very useful in helping us um, really begin to think about what it may look like to engage with the lived realities of the people around us. Ustembi uh, so will do a thorough introduction of himself, um, but I will mention that he is the director of the Ujama Center for Biblical and Theological Community Development and Research, um, a center for the University of KwaZulu-Natal, and uh, has been a practitioner of contextual Bible study uh, for many years. So uh, we're going to dip into a conversation I got to have with him, uh, the seasoned practitioner, and uh, I hope that you will leave challenged and inspired to begin exploring ways that we can use our faith and in particular the Bible and our reading of the Bible to really locate people and start where they are, you know, begin taking people's context and experience seriously, um, even as we seek to spread the gospel. So enough of me, uh, let's dip into the conversation and uh, enjoy. Um, And so maybe let's start with uh, who you are, introduce yourself to our audience. Yes, um, my name is uh, Stembiso uh, Zwane. Uh, I am a minister in the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Southern Africa. Uh, I'm also the director of the Ujamaa Center for Biblical and Theological Community Development and Research, which is a center of the University of Wazulu-Natal uh, in the School of Religion, Philosophy and Classics. Yeah, that, that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing. So, um, yeah, that's exactly what I actually would love you to dive into today. Um, you know, talking about talking to us a little bit about what you do in terms of contextual Bible study. So, yeah, for people who are quite new to this, both lay people and mm. church people, please give us yeah. an intro to contextual Bible study and contextual theology in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <clears throat> thank you very much, Cecilia. Contextual Bible study is um, an intersectionality between um, community and uh, the academia. You bring together organic, uh, organic intellectuals, people who are in the community, together with the trained readers of the Bible, people who are in the academia, in the university, together so that they can reread the biblical text. They bring with them their expertise, both as organic intellectuals as well as trained readers of the Bible, the so-called biblical scholars. When they come together, they engage in what is called contextual reading of the Bible. The, the organic intellectuals bring with them 
their experiences of being in the community. And that experience is unique because scholars might not necessarily be interested in it and might not necessarily have experience of it, but the organic intellectuals bring that into the discussion. The same with, with the trained readers, they bring the discipline of biblical scholarship into the rereading of the Bible. So when the two meet, what happens is what we call contextual Bible reading. Um, those who are in the margins of society reading together with those who are in the academia, uh, trying to find out what does the Bible offer um, as a resource, both for communities as well as for the academia. Um, and contextual theology therefore features prominently in that discussion because contextual theology is concerned about what is happening in the community where the organic intellectuals are. And is also concerned about um, changing the narrative um, where there is oppression, contextual theology seeks liberation. Um, where there is uh, ignorance, contextual theology wants to bring about light into that discussion. So contextual theology is concerned about key themes that exist in the community and reflecting on those themes from an academic perspective. Uh, hence, you need the biblical scholars to be part of that process. But ultimately, contextual theology is liberation theology, which comes from Latin America um, in terms of its uh, origins. Uh, but also in our own South African context, there's a lot of similarities between Latin America and uh, Africa in particular. Um, and South Africa, when we look at this, the, the history of uh, our liberation from apartheid to, to democracy, you can clearly see how the Bible was used contextually in that context, because we use the Bible, especially the, the narrative in Exodus um, to Deuteronomy, to engage <clears throat> with this narrative of liberation, to say Moses in Exodus uh, was our Nelson Mandela in South Africa. When, when, when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt um, and then Mo Joshua took over in, in, in Deuteronomy, moving into the book of Joshua, um, that was a story of liberation, of moving from uh, slavery, oppression of, of slavery into a post-slavery period uh, of freedom for the Israelites. The same with South Africans moving away from an apartheid government of the National Party to an, a post-1994 era of democracy um, led by the ANC. Um, that, that in itself is when you do contextual Bible reading. You are comparing a story in the Bible that speaks about liberation with the context of political liberation in a South African context. That's what contextual Bible study is. It is about understanding theology contextually uh, by focusing on specific themes that are contextual, but not ignoring the ideological context of the Bible, that the Bible is both historical as well as ideological. And that's why you need biblical scholars so that they dig deep into historically, what was this text about? Ideologically, what was this text about? Then you use the history as well as the ideological context of the text to then analyze your local context. That becomes contextual theology. The, the, the mirroring of the two contexts in order to find synergy between the two contexts and then interpreting those two contexts to make sense of what the Bible is offering you as a resource. So basically that's what contextual theology is about. It's, 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 it's reading of two um, uh, contexts by two different um, 
community as well as academia components engaging in the Bible together. Not one reading for the other, but both of them reading together the same text with as equal partners, not one being seen to the other. Uh, because that's another important thing when you talk contextual Bible study. You can have a professor, an unemployed person, a bishop, a woman, a, a, a young person, all of them sitting in one group. They are treated as equals. They, there is no senior person there. Because what CP, contextual Bible study does is, is to level the playing fields so that everybody feels that they, their contribution is, is respected and is appreciated. Um, that's why that's why it's different from other methods because it doesn't look at what what position a person holds, what race, gender, what class. Focuses mainly on the capacity of reading the Bible that you bring with you, your experience of reading the Bible that you bring with you. I love how you uh, you know earlier on you mentioned how you know some people get very shocked when people start you know engaging in contextual Bible study. They're like, oh, you know, suddenly you're, you're very political. Um, so maybe yes, so maybe yes. talk to us about um, very quickly the particular emphasis in the political. Um, I think the key thing is that when we talk about the Bible being a political uh, entity, is that it comes from a particular community and a particular um class of people race and gender we all know that the bible comes from a patriarchal society um in the jewish context the majority of the people who wrote um the bible were all men um you know and of course that in itself is a political statement to make to say let us acknowledge the fact that the bible is written mostly by men um, the narrative of the Bible itself is about male dominance. Um, you hear about the disciples of Jesus Christ, you are told, you're talking about majority of 11 of them being men, with one being contested, whether there was a woman as the 12th disciple. Um, it's still a contestation, but you also hardly hear women being named, given names in the Bible. You are told that a woman who was bleeding, but who, what was the name of the bleeding woman? We are told about the little girl whose father was Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. But what was the name of the little girl? We only know the little girl through the father, which is Jairus. So it's political in the sense that it is biased towards a particular gender. Um, and, and women seemed not to feature. Um, and, and of course, even in the hierarchy, women were at the bottom of the hierarchy. It was men on top, the slaves in the middle, and the women at the bottom. So it's political in that way. And, 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 and currently in our context, we are saying women have so much to offer and we must value women. We're talking about the ordination of women, making sure that women are represented in, in parliaments, for instance, uh, that they constitute at least 60% of our parliaments because they were previously uh, disadvantaged and, 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 and marginalized. So the Bible is political in that sense that it begins to, uh, show us that patriarchy did not begin now. It began centuries ago. So we need to inter 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 interrogate the Bible so that we are able to find out what led to it being a patriarchal product. Um, and therefore, we take that, that lesson into our current context. And then we, we challenge the same system of patriarchy today in our own South African context. So it is in that context that we say the Bible itself is, is political. When we talk about issues of land, you know, you read the story of Naboth, for instance, in 1 Kings 21, how Naboth lost his land 
um, through a political maneuvering and manipulation by King Ahab and, and, and his wife, uh, Jezebel. So in that way, you find these nuances in the Bible where you see elements of political influence and elements of political manipulation. Um, and, and therefore, we cannot shy away from the fact that the Bible itself is political. Um, because even people who wrote the Bible had their own interests when they were writing. You can, you can read between the lines that oh, this author uh, was trying to, put a to push a particular agenda. So it's there. Uh, that's where we take our, our, our cue in terms of arguing that the Bible itself is political. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so, you know, we are in Advent season, as, as you would know. Um, yes. And I would love to be able to connect the Christmas story uh, to what you do. And you, you mentioned a little bit that contextual theology is, mm. is, comes out of liberation theology. So, so in, in, your, in your mind, how would you be able to create, um, to connect that Christmas story to, to liberation theology? Mm -hmm. Yes. No, thank you, Cecilia. I think Jesus himself was the great liberator. Um, he came to liberate um, those who were oppressed politically, economically, uh, spiritually, and culturally. So Jesus came to liberate. So he is the architect of liberation theology. Um, because you remember, he, he came to the world to save the world um, from its own um, uh, self-destruction. Um, through sin, all sorts of sin, not only individual sin, but also structural sin. And structural sin is about economics. Um, the fact that you have, have people who have more than enough, uh, whereas you have others who, are, who have nothing to eat. That's economics. And Jesus came so that the poor can be liberated, not only from their oppressors, but also liberated from economic injustices. So Jesus represents liberation in all forms of liberation. Uh, because liberation is a very broad concept. So Jesus came for that. So when we celebrate his birth, um, you know, we remember that he came to liberate those who are oppressed, economically, politically, and otherwise. So the story of Christmas is a story of love. It's a story of celebrating the love that Christ showed us when he died on the cross, so that we can all be liberated from our different oppressions. Um, and, and Christ represents um, the future for, for many people. It represents hope for many people who are, who, are, who are desperate for a better life. Christ is that hope. Christ is that liberator. Um, and you remember that also Christ brings families together um, because he himself was a child within a particular family. So it's also about family integration and family union. All these things are, are symbolic and they're very important when it comes to the Advent, the, the, the liturgical calendar uh, of Advent. It reminds us of the importance of liberation and the love of Christ, which unites families during this time. Because during this time, even those who had not been at home for some time, they feel the need to show up during this time because they know how important it is to be part of a family during the Advent. So yeah, Christ is, is a reminder, a constant reminder that we belong to families and also that we are about um, liberation, that the key thing is liberation uh, of our people who are oppressed. What does yeah. contextualizing our faith and the Christmas story look like? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think contextualizing our faith really has to look like justice. 
Um, because that's what Jesus Christ would want us to do, uh, to be the people of faith who are just and who get concerned whenever they see injustices. Um, I, I, I always quote the, the words of the Archbishop Emeritus Desmond Thought when it comes to the issue of justice, because he, he, he argued vehemently that if an elephant has its foot on the tail of the mouse and you say you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. Um, and if a person says um, they are neutral in conditions of injustice, they've already taken the side and they've taken the side of the oppressor. So we cannot be neutral when it comes to issues of injustice. And whenever we see injustice, we must therefore fight for justice. And for me, contextualizing our faith means that we must fight for justice. Wherever we see injustices manifest, we must challenge injustices using everything that we have um, as people of faith to say the God we serve is the God of justice and not a God of injustice. Um, and that for me will be a way forward in terms of our churches uh, where we see women being violently abused by their partners. We say this is an injustice, we get involved. Uh, where we see people of the LGBT community, even if we don't agree with what they do, but whenever they are killed because of their sexuality, we say this is an injustice and therefore we'll get involved. You know, um, whenever we see people removed from their land because um, the king has instructed that they must be removed from that land, we intervene and we say this is an injustice, therefore there must be justice to this. The unemployed have no jobs and we say this is an injustice. Um, where are they going to get money, you know, to provide for their families? Do we expect them to simply just have money? or then we expect them to go out and steal in order to eat. It's an injustice. We need to get involved. That's, how, that's what it means to contextualize our faith. It means we must prioritize um, those who are oppressed. We must challenge injustices wherever they manifest. For me, that would be an ideal way of contextualizing our faith. That's, that's fantastic. Thanks so much for, for that as well. And I guess uh, another question that I have and something that you know, I've, I've heard, you know, people raise in, in, in these kinds yes. of discussions is, you know, mm. how do we navigate the tension of locating people, meeting them where they are, contextualizing our faith without mm. losing its essence? Is there even a tension? Maybe, I mean, we can even, even start there. Is there a tension mm. of, you know, mm. con context versus losing its, its essence, et cetera, et cetera? Well, well, I think that would be subject to different ways of appropriating what we mean by tension um, because and of course we also also think that tension is something that is negative there is a positive tension um, where people bring their own experience into the table um, and because there is the experiences differ people interpret that as a tension but it is their experience it can't be a tension when someone narrates their own story it's like someone simply rub, rubbishing your experience of racism as we, re we recently saw on that on that on that video, um, someone saying, "I don't care; it doesn't affect me," you know, because they are not they've not experienced racism. They don't see the importance of uh, narrating a story about racism because it doesn't concern them. They they kind of trivialize it, but for someone who has experienced racism, it becomes a serious issue. So you can never never nullify that as something that is uh, unimportant. Um, inconsequential, but we've seen that in the past, but that is not a tension. It's a matter of people bringing their own 
uh, experience into the table and sharing that experience. What people need to do is to appreciate the diversity of experiences that people bring with them um, as something that is positive rather than as something that is negative. Um, because we have a lot of things that we bring that, that shapes who you are as, as people. Um, it can never be seen as something that is negative. Um, that's why I think that, that I like the biblical text in, in First, in first uh, Corinthians 12, when, when St. Paul uses the analogy of the body, uh, where he argues that the, 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 the ear cannot do what an eye can do. Um, the, the mouth cannot do what a hand can do. So each and every member of the body is equally important in the body because it offers something unique to the body. It might not be the same job that an eye will do, um, that the hand also will do, but both the eye and the hand are equally important. You can never say the hand is not important because I can have the eye to see. No, but you, the eye cannot use, cannot handle anything. It can only show you the way, but cannot handle. Same with the, with, the, with, the, with, the, with the hands. They cannot see, but they can help you grab something and lift it up. So each and every member of the body is important. The same way each and every experience um, of individuals is important in shaping our own narrative as the people. I love that uh, so much. That uh, yeah, that picture that St. Paul uh, mm. paints there about you know, us needing each other. And, and it always exactly. reminds me that I can't really claim to see God or even want to know him in his fullness if I don't take your experience into consideration because Absolutely. we are different in that way. And so in all of our differences Absolutely. and our diversity, we're able to really see this many-sided and multicolored God for who he really is. So And so you're right, tension doesn't have to be bad. And I suppose it's part of that thing of story, that origin story actually of Israel itself in the Bible um, of Jacob fighting, right? That fighting yes. the angel, um, contending with the angel and, and contending with scripture in that way. Here's a tension here of am I how do I contextualize this? Is this yeah, yeah is it contextualizable? Is it, you know, what, what's the essence here? And 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 grappling with that. Um so I love that that um that note that actually there is no thing as as maybe negative or rather you know tension can be good essentially. Can be good, yes. Is what she's so so I've heard you say that you now read the Bible with contextual bias in mind. Uh, tell us what you mean by that and what are some of the contextual biases you have in mind when you read the text? Yes, I like the way you phrase it. <laughs> yeah, um, we, we always say at Uchama, we are overtly biased towards those who are marginalized. <laughs> so whenever we read the Bible, we make it clear that we are not neutral um, in reading the Bible. We, we, we are really, really biased. And Our you know biasness, what? And I love yes. that because... Either, in other contexts, in other church traditions, we pretend that there's no bias, but there is actually yes. always a bias, right? There's no such thing exactly. as a neutral reading yeah, of the text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. For us, we are overt. Others will 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 try and justify, you know, that no, they look at all the angles. Um, we look at all the angles, but eventually we take the sides. We 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 don't stand on the fence and say no, we are not going to get involved. This is politics. No, no, no. Wherever we see um, uh, marginalization, discrimination, oppression, we will get involved and we'll take the side of those who are discriminated, the side of those who are marginalized, and the side of those who are oppressed. And we will clearly search the scriptures for narratives that, that promote liberation rather than, rather than oppression. And one thing I must also underscore, Cecilia, is that the Bible itself is contested 
as we have said, that it, it has elements of liberation as well as elements of oppression. So we must, we must acknowledge that, that it is contested. Oppressors will find text that talks about oppression and that might even justify oppression. But also liberators will find text in the Bible that talks about liberation and justify liberation. The only difference is that what we have had in the past is the dominance of oppression rather than the dominance of liberation. So what we are doing is to promote biblical text that talks about liberation. Because for centuries, we've had texts that are oppressive, especially oppressive to women. Um, and therefore, we are now saying we must change that narrative and talk about texts that liberates women um, and also talk about the liberation of humanity as a whole. Um, and therefore, that's, what, that's where we are really focusing and saying our contextual engagement um, is biased in that regard. Um, that even the questions that we design when we do a contextual Bible study, we design them in such a way that they interrogate the systems and structures that gave birth to the text that we read to show the reader that the contestation is not a new phenomenon. It's something that dates back to centuries when the Bible was written. Um, there was always contestation then, uh, as is contestation today. Um, so that's, that's, that's where our biasness is, that we want to show the hypocrisy, even of the writers of the Bible, uh, to some extent, to say there was a, an agenda here. And therefore, let's interrogate that agenda and expose that agenda. Um, I want to go back to the story of Jezebel and Ahab. There you can clearly see a story of an agenda, you know, um, where a king is being told that you are a king, you can do as you please. Uh, don't allow non-entities to, to, to distract you. That land that Napot is resisting to give to you you will have that land, it will be yours. And eventually Napot is killed by a king using his network and supported by his evil wife there, unfortunately. In that context, wife is very bad, is influencing the king to kill. <laughs> so, so you see systems being in, in place there because what, what, what Jezebel does is to activate the patriarchal network of his husband, sorry, of her husband, rather, uh, uh, Ahab, to then kill uh, Napot. Uh, Jezebel doesn't even think about Napoth's wife to say what will happen to the other woman if, 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 I, if I kill you know, the husband. She doesn't care about that. She just activates the patriarchal network because it's convenient for her to get the land uh, from Napoth and give it to the husband. So you can see also women conniving with men if it's convenient for them to get certain things on the, on, 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 done on their behalf. Mm. Um, but what we're encouraging is the network of women, the solidarity of women to challenge injustice and not be selective to say, no, when it favors me, I'm not going to get involved. No, wherever there's an injustice, women together must fight uh, the patriarchal system and not ever embrace a patriarchal system. Because once you do that, you are entrenching this system and it will never really let go. And we yeah. need to destroy this system mm. of patriarchy. And internalized patriarchy is definitely a thing. And, and I also find yes. it interesting, you know, in that in that story of, of Naboth and, you know, Jezebel and uh, King Ahab, you know, it's, it's like the Bible in these instances, it, it just shows us these stories, right? It tells us these stories. And we find stories in the Bible really of instances where injustice was supported by the biblical characters and instances where obviously justice uh, was upheld as well. And so yes. it, it's like, we really need to be able to read it in its entirety and let the text exactly. speak 
um and Absolutely. and and yeah and not and not always think that you know just because it's in the bible then like you know yeah, it's, it's exactly. been sanctioned or like yeah. we're not allowed to question some of these that were ah, happening there yeah. so yeah. so that's great and and speaking of the, the bible and 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 again you know talking about context what are some of the things that we we will need to keep in mind, particularly if we go to the New Testament and we think about some of the some of the, the, the times that Jesus lived in himself? Um, you mentioned earlier that you see Jesus as a, as a liberator, and you know there were a couple of things that Jesus said which showed his awareness of the social and political happenings around his time in terms of taxes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, so. What are yeah? What are some of the things, the contextual biases, of, to use your term, do we need to be aware of around um, even the context in which Jesus lived? No, thank you very much, Cecilia. I, I think we must understand Jesus as um, as as someone who was a citizen, uh, who experienced the challenges that all the citizens will experience, and um, we must remember that he was fully God and fully human. So that's something very unique. Um, you can have a God who has less attributes as a human being, or you can have a human being who, who's, who has no attributes of being a, a divine, a deity. But with Jesus, you find both. Um, I think one thing we must take is his ability to relate to people's problems and challenges. Um, Jesus was always on the ground willing to listen to people who are sick, um, to people who are um, who, who were experiencing different challenges um, in their families, family conflict, um, issues around um, the marginalization of women by, by men. When he arrived at the, at the well, you know, he was having a conversation with a woman. Um, it was a very um, sophisticated or innovative kind of uh, engagement that they had with the women at the well. But for me, the key issue, when, when he arrived at the woman who was, called, uh, was caught um, in adultery, you know, um, and saying, whoever among you, whoever has no sin among you must be the first to cast the stone. Um, and there was no one there to cast the first stone. That for me was a very clear uh, indication of a Jesus who is able to relate um, to people's challenges and is able to challenge injustices. Because there was no mention of the man um, who was caught with the woman. But they were simply saying the Jewish law says, if a, a, a person is caught you know, in adultery, that person must be, must be stoned to death. But where is the man? You know, that's, that's what was lacking there, the question of where is the man in this? And Jesus diplomatically is able to avoid um, a situation where a woman is killed for something that she did not do alone, but together with the, the man. Um, that's the Jesus who relates. That's the Jesus who's human. Uh, who's telling us that we must be able to solve our own problems um, without jumping into the conclusion of being violent. We must be able to simply engage in an analysis of situations that we find in, in, our, in our context. Let's analyze those situations and let's make informed decisions about the things that we are observing in our communities without having to use violence to try and solve problems. Um, Jesus never really encouraged people to use violence because even when one of his disciples cut the ear um, of those who are attacking Jesus, he took the ear and put it back because he was simply saying violence is not the answer to all our problems in society. We must think and um, find lasting solutions to our problems. 
So I think Jesus as a citizen, we, there's a lot we can learn from him in terms of his ability to resolve conflict and his ability to relate to people um, in all levels, whether you are rich or poor, male or female, Jew or Greek. He was able to relate to everybody um, equally, even though he was God, but he was able to humble himself. Hence, he says, I came not to be served, but to serve. So he demonstrated that ministry of servanthood, you know, of being humble, the element of humility. Despite all your powers and achievements, you remain humble and you serve the people that God has called you to serve. So I think that that is something that we must learn from Jesus um, and, and, and who he was, uh, both as God and both as, both as God as well as as human. There's a lot to learn there. Mm, yeah, thank you for sharing that. I, and I guess, you know, to, to quickly latch on to that, that question, then just two more questions left, uh, Rev. Mm-hmm. So how yes. would you advise us to really begin rethinking our, our understanding to some of the words of the Bible, for instance? I, I think we must first acknowledge that when we read the Bible, we don't read the Bible with um, one voice. There are different contesting voices in the Bible. And I think the tendency in our churches has been to assume that the Bible speaks with one voice. By one voice, I mean that there's only one position in the Bible. No, there isn't one position. There are different positions in the Bible. There's a position of men in the Bible. There's a position of women in the Bible. There's a position of rich people in the Bible. There's a position of poor people in the Bible. There's a position of priests in the Bible and the position of those who are members of the the churches. So there are very diverse views. And once we acknowledge that, then we are able to go to the Bible with an open mind to know that um, we, we can hear the voice of the oppressor in the Bible and the voice of the oppressed in the Bible. So when we go there, we then listen to all the voices in the Bible. And then we take a position and say, having listened to all these voices in the Bible, this is the voice we are willing to support. And we are supporting this voice because this voice has been marginalized for too long. Now we want this voice to be heard. And therefore you elevate that voice that has been marginalized and you take a position to support that voice. That's basically what, we, what, what, what biblical hermeneutics is about. It's about interpreting the biblical text, but you can either inter- interpret it to support the oppressed or interpret it to support the oppressor. It's a choice that a, a reader makes when they approach the Bible, but you find those different positions in the Bible anyway. Um, but it's up to you what side do you want to take when you read the Bible. But to simply assume that there's only one voice, I think is a big mistake that has been made and it needs to be corrected. Um, and I think contextual Bible study in a way attempt to con- con- correct that view of saying there's only one position in the Bible. We say, no, there isn't. There are a number of voices and positions in the Bible. You just need to navigate through those different voices and, and support a voice that you, you think uh, requires support for it to be heard. Fantastic. Thanks so much for giving us that the practical consideration uh, to be aware of when we when we begin to really start to unpack our understanding and our relationship to some of these, these words. So then let's say, you know, someone has listened to this and they are sold. They're like, I get it. Textualizing our theology, liberation, et cetera, you know, multiple positions of the Bible. Where can they practically start? You know, give us a practical guide to doing contextual theology or contextual Bible study? Easy steps. Thank you. Uh, It's a very pragmatic question. It's it's very, very helpful. 
I think we begin where we think we have the space and the platform to be able to start a conversation. You can start at home where you are uh, so that you don't complicate things. You take the Bible, you read a particular passage in the Bible, and you say to your family members, let's have a conversation. What do you think of this passage? Uh, do you think this passage is affirming or non-affirming? Do you think this passage is oppressive or liberating? You start the conversation there. Once you get the buy-in from your, your, your family to say, yeah, I can see there are different contesting voices in this narrative. Okay, which, 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 which part of this narrative do you think requires a, a, a support structure so that the voice that they, they project is heard? And then people start saying, oh, I see a child here being marginalized. I see a woman here being marginalized. I see a, a poor man here, a poor woman here being marginalized. Then, then the question, the next question is, who among us here in the community will be this character that we read about in the Bible? And you start saying, oh, I see there, there, are, there are women there in that house who are being abused. Oh, there's a poor person there in that house who has no food. Okay, what then can we do to assist? You start ma making practical plans to say, okay, maybe once a month we'll, we'll take some uh, groceries and, and go and give to that poor man staying there. So that at least we make a change in one person's life, a month. They have food for the month. We have already done something practical from a reading of scripture that shows you there are challenges in the community. You are already making interventions from that reading of the scripture. Then from there, you move to your community um, and you, you get the community involved. You move into your church. You get your church involved. Suddenly, you have the whole community in support of that initiative. Then you start having contextual Bible studies with the communities and the churches to show them more biblical texts um, that are supportive of those who are poor and that are supportive of women who are being oppressed by their partners. Um, and that, that's, that way you are beginning to build what we call a movement um, of people who are thinking alike about a particular issue. That way you are already making an impact in your own community. But start small. Uh, so that you are not overwhelmed um, and start where you think you have the powers to influence so that you don't get, get discouraged. You don't just go to the bishop and his clergy and you start there. They simply throw you out and they quote scriptures. They tell you, you know nothing about theology and then you get discouraged. But if you start small, you build your confidence and you read more. By the time you get to the bishop and the priest, you are already armed with the biblical texts that are very progressive. You are armed with a, a movement behind you that you have already convinced to say the Bible speaks a lot about liberation rather than, rather than oppression. That way you are able to, to make um, a significant change in the community. Thank you so much, Rev, for those practical steps. Um, I love that second one particularly, uh, which is about understanding who we are in the story uh, because obviously there's a tendency, right, you know, uh, that we have of um, wanting to read ourselves as the hero, right, or the victim of the story. You know, it's the Pharisees and the peasants in the New Testament, you know, we never see ourselves as the oppressive religious teachers, <laughs> but we're quick to position ourselves as the ones being persecuted against, right? In the Old Testament story of Sarah and Hagar, we're quick to see ourselves as Hagar, you know, who's at the complete end of her rope and crying out to the God who sees without also interrogating the way some of us are actually Sarah in the story, right? Uh, the ways we are complicit in um, upholding or enforcing injustice and how to 
then repent, right? Just like you said, you know, how we read um, and the implications of what we see will naturally then lead us to action. So I really love how contextual Bible study makes us aware of these very real power dynamics, which are very present in scripture as well, and then calls us to go beyond the individualizing, right, over-spiritualization of scripture towards actual true reconciliation and retribution and restorative justice. Uh, so Rev, I mean, I'm not sure if you have any last words, uh, but thank you so much for coming on and for generously sharing your insights with us. I mean, you've been doing this for years, so hats off to you. It's an absolute honor to be able to host and glean from legends such as yourself. Uh, I'm humbled. I just want to thank you for your, for your insight and for your vision. Um, uh, you are a young young woman, very intelligent, uh, and I really appreciate you are very committed to what you are doing, and a lot of young people will learn a lot from you. You are a community builder, and um, I, I just pray that God keeps you uh, motivated and never feel that you are overwhelmed by this. Take this as part of your calling as a young person. And you will influence a lot of people, not only women, but everybody will be influenced by your insight and your vision and commitment to this. I will do this any time of the day because this is what I think um, uh, is my small contribution to the work that has already been uh, been done in the past and is ongoing. And young people like you motivate me. Uh, when I wake up in the morning and see such passion, I say, yeah, which means there's something good that, that we are doing. you it was a good one (laughs) i really hope you were as challenged as i was to begin interrogating the ways we read the text uh to beginning challenging ourselves out of our comfort zones as it pertains to who we read the text with you know is it with people who just look and think like us uh how do we see ourselves when we read the bible do we position ourselves as the victim or the hero are we willing to investigate the ways we could be siding with the oppressor I encourage you to find community that you can begin contending with. Uh, Find us online as well. We'd love to hear from you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at AnnaDominiMag or visit us on our website at AnnaDominiMag.com. Keep engaging and following our content drops as we continue this journey of looking at the incarnation of Christ and what it means for us and our walk of justice in our African context. And thank you so much for joining us today for this conversation. Hope to see you next time. Bye.